You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 46. The Marriage Certificate. The Marriage Certificate commemorates my grandparents tying the knot on June the 12th, 1924, at the Oxford and St George's Synagogue in the London Borough of Stepney. Hang on, I hear you cry. How can you have a synagogue named after a university city and a Christian saint? Well, St George's Parish is the name of the area of the East End which leads down to the docks. And Oxford was the alma mater of the founder of the Jewish settlement where the synagogue stood, a man named Sir Basil Henricus. It was Sir Basil who presided over the marriage between Alfred Diamond and Celia Ginswick. But it's not the maiden named Ginswick that appears on the register, but Genzuk, its original Russian form. And between the names Henricus and Genzuk, we can see the huge social divide between European Jews which persisted then and now. You would not need the deductive abilities of a Holmes or Poirot to work out that Sir Basil, Lucas, Kixano Henricus, CBEJP, was not a product of poor working-class Jewish East End. He was a Sephardi, whose family originated in Spain, but had been in the UK since the 17th century. The Sephardim had completely integrated by the time the huge wave of Eastern European Jews began arriving in the UK. Indeed, during the 19th century, many reached the height of their profession and became pillars of the community, such as Benjamin Disraeli in politics, Jacob Castello in literature, and Daniel Mendoza in professional boxing. My ancestors, on the other hand, were Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe, who mostly came to Britain during the second half of the 19th century. There were many in the Sephardi community who resented these Yiddish-speaking Arivists. Some of this was understandable. Many already resident Jews were afraid of a new wave of anti-Semitism if the Jewish population swelled. But there was also a large element of plain snobbery at work. The Sephardic community was established, integrated and increasingly, let's not mince words here, posh. They didn't want their hard-won acceptance into polite society trampled by an uncouth rabble of gefilte fish-eating peasants from the East, with whom they had little in common other than an ability to parrot ancient Hebrew. But, as with every wave of immigration before and since, there was a drive to assimilate, to get on. The young Avram and Shandel Genzuk, who arrived in Glasgow, quickly realised they would need to learn English and even if it didn't mean adopting every British trait, they knew life would be easier if they at least understood them. And this need to integrate and assimilate included the transformation from Avram and Shandel Genzuk to Abraham and Jane Ginswick. So, what's in a name? And are names really that important? All the evidence suggests that the long and short answer to both questions is a lot and Yes. In the acting profession, the anglicisation of names has a long history as any look at the story of Hollywood shows. Neither Emmanuel Goldberg nor Friedrich Wiesenfreund, both stars of American Yiddish theatre, 
are names you would associate with cinematic tough guys and gangsters. But once they changed their names to Edward G. Robinson and Paul Muni respectively, both achieved fame playing Little Rico and Scarface. Similarly, Isor Danielovich is no one's idea of an action hero, but Kirk Douglas definitely is. It's not only in the acting profession that names count, and neither is it a bygone issue. Studies conducted over the last decade, both here and in the US, have concluded that African oration names on CVs are 50% more likely to experience rejection by recruiters. But even after a name change, confusion can happen. My great-uncle Julius was the first Ginswick to make it to university, and, soon after graduating from LSE, served as a lieutenant during the Second World War. A snooty old colonel spotted him in the officer's mess and took him to one side. Tell me, Lieutenant, are you one of the Derbyshire Ginswicks? No, sir. My family has always lived on the Langdale estate. Very well, nodded the colonel, as you were. Julius was telling the truth. He grew up with his parents in Langdale Mansions, a block of cold water council flats off Commercial Road in the East End. Five more generations of Ginswicks had been born, married and died since Avrom and Shandler arrived here. And from such humble beginnings, these have included teachers, scientists, artists, a UK director of IBM, a professor of history, a film censor and an award-winning journalist. I say this not to brag. If Avrom and Shandler arrived here in the UK under the same circumstances today, they would be as much of a target for the Daily Mail and Daily Express as they were to the right-wing press at the turn of the last century. A search for the reaction to Jews fleeing Eastern Europe at the end of the 1900s produces the same results as today. They are undercutting the wages of our native workforce. They are forcing us to accept their strange customs and religion. They don't speak English. We're full up. A long editorial in the Daily Mail even described Jewish immigrants taking up residence in London, Manchester and Glasgow as mentally degenerate. That's right, the best-selling mid-market newspaper, owned then as now by the Rothermere family, had categorical proof that us Jews are a bit dim. What they didn't know, and still won't admit, is that people facing hostility and oppression who get on boats and put all their resources into finding a new life in a safe haven, are often exactly the kind any enterprising country should welcome. And from a Jewish perspective, the evidence is all around us. If Avram and Shandel's generation of Eastern European Jews, instead of making a new life in Britain, had simply been herded onto offshore barges, we might never have heard of Harold Pinter, Lionel Bart, Peter Sellers, Arnold Wesker, Miriam Margolis, Warren Mitchell, Peggy Ashcroft or Amy Whitehouse. You can add to that list a number of national treasures fated as exemplars of the British character. Sid James, Lawrence Harvey, Stephen Fry, Leslie Howard, Jane Seymour. Even though Sid James's real name was Solomon Cohen and Lawrence Harvey was Moisha Skickner. A 19th century Suella Braverman would have meant no Ealing comedies, because Michael Balkan, 
wouldn't have become head of the studio and personally overseen several decades of classic British films. And with no Brian Epstein to wander into the cavern one lunchtime in 1961, it's possible that the Beatles would never have made it out of Liverpool. More specifically, it would have meant no Mr Braverman. Just under a year after my grandparents Alf and Celia married, my father Paul was born. And about 28 years after that, in April 1952, Paul married Carrie, my mother. As with my grandparents, Sir Basil Henricus presided over the wedding in the same synagogue. When someone in the position of rabbi officiates over a Jewish wedding, it is customary for them to make a few observations about the institution of marriage and its spiritual role in family life. This usually involves advice on observing the Sabbath, lighting the candles on Friday night and generally keeping a good Jewish home. On this occasion, Sir Basil chose to advise Mum and Dad that it was time to drop all these lefty opinions and affiliations they'd picked up in their youth and begin taking their responsibilities seriously. As Dad told me, their entire families were in the room, so they were in no real position to argue, and Mum's main memory was the two of them desperately trying not to fall about laughing. Thankfully, Sir Basil's advice was ignored. That was The Marriage Certificate, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then please like, subscribe, and please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.